Okay, so this is going to be the exam three study guide for Pathopharm 2. So starting with module 11, diabetes, describe glucagon, insulin, amylin, and somatostatin. So glucagon is released from alpha pancreatic cells and it increases blood glucose by stimulating the liver to convert glycogen to glucose, amongst other things. Insulin is released from beta pancreatic cells and it facilitates the uptake of glucose into cells to decrease blood glucose. So glucagon is increasing blood glucose, insulin is decreasing. Amylin is also released from beta pancreatic cells and it inhibits glucagon secretion, slows glucose absorption, and increases satiety. Somatostatin is released from data delta pancreatic cells and it's a hormone that inhibits growth hormone. So it, it also inhibits insulin and glucagon secretion. So it's really allowing the tissue to use what is already available within the body. Okay, next objective, differentiate between glycolysis glycogenesis, glycogenolysis, and gluconeogenesis. Glycolysis is the breakdown of glucose. Glycogenesis is the creation of glycogen from glucose. You're making new glycogen. Glycogenolysis is the breakdown of glycogen into glucose, so the opposite of glycogenesis. And gluconeogenesis is the creation of glucose from broken down fats and proteins, so you're making new glucose. Describe the pathophysiology of incretins. So incretins are substances that are secreted from the intestinal mucosal cells when there's a lot of glucose in the small intestine. So this is how your body's going to respond when you ingest carbs. They, uh, their job is to stimulate the pancreas to release insulin to lower the blood glucose after you do have those heavy carb meals. So there are two incretins. We have glucose-dependent insulinotropic peptide and glucagon-like peptide 1. So GIP and GLP-1, these are both going to be released and deactivated extremely quickly. They're deactivated by dipeptidase 4, so the pancreas isn't going to be excessively stimulated. So you eat carbs and really quickly you're going to release these and then deactivate them. Explain the anabolic effects of insulin and the catabolic effects of insulin insufficiency. So anabolic, we always want to think building. So anabolic effects of insulin, insulin is going to promote growth and the buildup and storage of any excess materials. So it's promoting the concentration of energy. It's promoting cell growth, cell division, and gene expression. So when you do have that excess, glucose is going to be converted to glycogen to be stored in the liver, and glycerol and free fatty acids are going to become triglycerides, and then amino acids will become proteins again. We also have the catabolic effects of insulin insufficiency. So when a patient enters a catabolic state, in that state, we have fat and proteins that are going to be broken down to support glucose formation, to support those and sustain those essential bodily functions. It's kind of like if we think about cortisol, it's going to prompt the breakdown of body tissue for energy, so it's that catabolic effect. Describe the inverse relationship of insulin and glucagon. So the body needs to maintain a very narrow range of blood glucose, so insulin and glucagon are both going to be essential to maintain homeostasis. So when blood glucose rises, insulin is going to be secreted and it will increase glucose uptake into cells and promote the conversion of glucose to glycogen, which is glycogenesis. So insulin responds to high blood glucose and lowers it. When blood glucose falls, glucagon is going to be secreted to promote the breakdown of glycogen into glucose, which is glycogenolysis, and the formation of glucose from fats and amino acids, which is gluconeogenesis. Okay, describe hemoglobin A1c and how it correlates with blood glucose. 
So hemoglobin A1c is a measure of the average blood glucose over the past three months. So hemoglobin is the molecule that carries oxygen to the body. So the hemoglobin A1c is a blood test that is basically assessing the amount of glucose that's covering the hemoglobin molecule. And we know red blood cells have a lifespan of about 120 days, which explain the three months duration of this test. So comparisons, generally speaking, a normal A1c is below 5.7. Pre-diabetic would be 5.7 to 6.4, and a diabetic hemoglobin A1c is 6.5 and higher. So if we're thinking about correlation with blood glucose, a 6% A1c is 126 milligrams per deciliter blood glucose, 7 is 154, 8 is 183, 9 is 212, 10 is 240, 11 is 269, and 12 is 298. So that's a good general rule. I realized that above 6, each additional percentage of hemoglobin A1c, so between 6 and 7, 7 and 8, is about 28 or 29 um, milligrams per deciliter increase in blood glucose. So if you think so if we're thinking about each additional percentage of hemoglobin A1c, we can roughly think about it as translating to an additional 30 milligrams per deciliter increase in blood glucose above 6. Okay, so differentiate between type 1 and type 2 diabetes. So type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune destruction of pancreatic beta cells, so there's no insulin being produced, so they were previously considered to be insulin dependent when we were talking about that language. In type 2 diabetes, it is caused by insulin resistance and or impaired insulin secretion. So this is historically known as non-insulin dependent diabetes mellitus. So some causes could be reduced binding of insulin to receptors, reduced receptor responsiveness, reduced receptor numbers, and chronic hyperglycemia that destroys beta cells and kind of prevents that insulin production or changes the quality of insulin as well. So when we're thinking about it, environmental factors and genetic predisposition contribute to obesity, which is one of the biggest causes of insulin resistance. Then that insulin resistance and faulty insulin release cause decreased glucose uptake by muscles and increased hepatic glucose output. This leads to hyperglycemia and type 2 diabetes. So differentiate between the Dawn effect and the Samogi phenomena. So the dawn effect is a rise in blood glucose between 5 a.m. and 9 a.m. So this is caused by increased insulin requirements overnight because glucagon and growth hormone are both being released as the body prepares for the day. Those are anabolic, so the body is needing kind of more energy and more glucose to make good use of that. So you're not going to have hypoglycemia. You're just going to have that higher glucose as the body kind of frees up the energy for the day. You also have the Samogi effect, which is a response to low blood glucose overnight, which causes elevated morning blood glucose. So you're going to have hypoglycemia at some point overnight, and then in the morning you'll have hyperglycemia. So that hypoglycemia could be induced by insulin overnight that causes regulatory muscle mechanisms, including glucagon and cortisol, maybe epinephrine to kick in and increase the morning glucose. So once again, you have hypoglycemia, then hyperglycemia. So explain the complications of diabetes mellitus. So we have acute complications like hypoglycemia. This includes the Dawn phenomena and the Samogi effect. So in hypoglycemia, there's too much insulin in the body in relation to blood glucose levels. So this could be caused by too much insulin in general, too little food, delayed time of eating after taking medications, or too much exercise. So your muscles are using all of that blood glucose in your body and you still have insulin left over. So this is considered blood glucose less than 70. So when you are in 
um, a state of hypoglycemia, you're going to have neuroendocrine hormones released and your sympathetic nervous system will be activated. So you're going to have release of epinephrine and cortisol. There are a number of manifestations. So you'll have shakiness, palpitations, nervousness, diaphoresis, anxiety, pallor, and those are related to that sympathetic nervous system activation. You'll also have hunger because your cells are detecting the need for glucose. So it's kind of causing that sensation biologically. Um, you'll also have altered mental status because glucose is the source of fuel for the brain. So you'll have difficulty speaking, visual disturbances, stupor, confusion, and even coma. And untreated hypoglycemia leads to a loss of consciousness, seizures, coma, and death. So hypoglycemia is extremely serious. It's going to kill someone a whole lot faster than hyperglycemia. You could also have patients who have hypoglycemia on awareness. So they would have no signs or symptoms until glucose levels are exceptionally low. So that would be caused by autonomic neuropathy and a lack of counter-regulatory hormones. So if the body's not able to respond with that sympathetic nervous system and hormones to hopefully increase blood glucose a little bit, you might not have symptoms. Patients who are at risk who want to keep their blood glucose higher, so that would be set kind of by their doctor to find a good level where they're a little more protected from that hypoglycemia. People who are at higher risk would be older adults and people on beta blockers because it might block some of those effects like tachycardia and palpitations. When we're thinking about treating hypoglycemia, if the blood glucose is less than 70, you're going to want to treat the symptoms. You would start with 15 grams of simple carbs, so that could be four to six ounces of fruit juice, maybe dextrose, something like that, and then you would recheck the glucose in 15 minutes. If it was still below 70 and they were still symptomatic, you'd give another 15 grams of simple carbs and then recheck in another 15 minutes. If their levels were still low, below 70 at that point, you would want to call 911 or escalate your concerns. When you're thinking about treating it, you'd want to avoid any sugars that contain fat because fat does slow glucose absorption, and you would also want to avoid overtreatment and not try to avoid causing a huge spike in hyperglycemia. After the patient stabilized, you'd give them complex carbs as tolerated to hopefully create some lasting control over that blood glucose as those carbs are digested slowly. If you want a hospital acute care setting, you could give 50% dextrose, 20 to 50 milliliters IV push, or if they weren't necessarily very conscious and you were, it was an emergency, you could give one milligram of glucagon, IM, or sub-Q. So there are a number of complications kind of long-term of diabetes. So we have large vessel damage, which is macrovascular, so macrovascular complications. These occur in large vessels, as I stated. So we have stroke, atherosclerosis, atherosclerosis, tongue-tied, um, ACS problems, and MI as well. And over half of type 2 diabetes patients die of macrovascular complications. So this is a huge problem. We also have microvascular complications, which generally is resulting from the thickening of basement membranes of capillaries from abnormal glycoprotein formations. So our first microvascular complication is retinopathy. So this is microvascular damage to the retina. It is the most common cause of new onset adult blindness. So we have non-proliferative retinopathy, which is the more common type. This is a partial occlusion of retinal vessels that causes microaneurysms. Proliferative retinopathy is more severe. So when these patients are diabetic, they are having decreased perfusion to their eyes. 
So our body is awesome and tries to compensate. So new blood vessels are formed, which is called neovascularization in response to that decreased perfusion. The problem is these new vessels are a lot more fragile and they bleed much more easily than a typical vessel. So they can rupture and bleed, which causes severe complications such as retinal detachment. So patients would want with diabetes would want to get eye exams annually because there aren't any particularly over visual changes and they might not notice until it was too late. Generally, the goals would be to maintain normal blood glucose and maintain, manage hypertension, since that could also worsen these problems. And they could potentially be treated with laser therapy to remove some of those um, new fragile blood vessels. We also have nephropathy. So diabetes is actually the leading cause of chronic kidney disease. And once again, those basement membranes in the glomerulus become thickened. So there's damage to the small vessels as well that supply the glomerulus. So this impairs blood flow and causes the progressive loss of kidney function with eventual renal failure. And these problems worsen dramatically with hypertension and smoking. So there are really big comorbidities there. You'll have plasma proteins that are lost to the urine causing albuminuria as that basement membrane becomes more leaky. Um, when you're testing things, you could see that microalbuminuria, you'd be checking the albumin to creatinine ratio, and it should be less than 30 in a healthy person. You would also see the um, GFR, the glomerular filtration ratio, slowly decrease as we have that decline and the kidneys are less able to filter the blood effectively. You'd be able to treat this with ACE inhibitors and ARBs, angiotensin receptor blockers, You'd want to have goals of keeping the blood pressure less than 140 over 80, um, controlling hyperlipidemia, and smoking sensation will be huge. We also have neuropathy as a complication. You could have somatic neuropathy, which is a diminished perception of pain, vibration, and temperature. It would begin distally. They kind of call it like a stocking glove. It begins distally and progresses medially, so it might start in someone's toe and work its way up their foot and into their calf. They would also potentially have hypersensitivity to light touch with occasional severe burning pain sensations. You can also have autonomic neuropathy, which affects nearly all body systems. And this would be deficits in vasomotor and cardiac responses. So you would see things like postural hypertension, resting tachycardia, painless myocardial infarction, since the body isn't able to detect that pain, impaired GI tract motility, so maybe delayed gastric emptying, impaired bladder emptying, so they'd have kind of urinary retention and incomplete emptying, also sexual dysfunction. Finally, we also have nerve damage. So when the blood glucose is really high, it creates that hyperosmolar state. So the nerve cells are producing intracellular osmoles to help them retain their fluids and prevent shrinkage, so they're not losing all of their fluids through that concentration gradient. So when the blood glucose finally returns to normal, especially when it happens quickly, these nerve cells are still hyperosmolar to the blood. And so the fluids being infused in are going to go into the, our little poor nerve cells and they're going to swell and potentially burst. This can cause severe nerve damage as well as things like demyelination. And um, when someone has vascular disease, the lack of oxygen and perfusion also contributes as our last chronic complication, foot ulcers are unfortunately very common in this population. Patients will have that neuropathy, the somatic neuropathy and the lost sensation. So they're unaware of trauma that they experience. If they stub their toe, they might not be, they not feel it and be aware as an example. Um, they also have vascular diseases, which decrease the perfusion to tissue and a high blood glucose really promotes infection since it's excellent fuel for pathogens and they're just really sweet. 
So it's kind of the perfect storm that they're not going to sense injuries when they occur. They're, they don't have good blood flow, so it's really difficult to heal. And that high blood glucose is really going to invite pathogens in. Okay, and the last objective for now is differentiate between diabetic ketoacidosis and hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state. So DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis, it's going to be seen in type 1 diabetes, which is when there is that absolute insulin deficiency. So patients are going to have a number of manifestations. So they'll be profoundly hungry. The cells are going to be detecting that they need glucose, and while the there is plenty of glucose in the body, they're not going to be able to use it. They're also going to have gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis. So glucose is being formed from glycogen, fats, and protein since the body is detecting the cellular need for glucose, even though they have tons of glucose in the blood already. So that's kind of just amping up the problem. You're also going to have osmotic diuresis. So when blood glucose levels are sustained higher than 180, the kidneys become unable to filter out all of that glucose. It's really hard work. So you're going to have a significant loss of glucose into the urine. So that would cause osmotic polyuria. This excessive urine output would also mean that the body is kind of pulling along protein, glucose, as we know, sodium, magnesium, and phosphate with us. So you're losing really high volumes of fluid and electrolytes and proteins. You're also going to have polydipsia, which is that severe thirst in response to that loss of fluid volume and dehydration. And this leads to hypovolemia, hypovolemia and vascular collapse. So with all these symptoms of DKA, you're going to have the, the three Ps, just like call it polyuria, polyphagia, and polydipsia. So profound urination, profound hunger, and profound thirst. So you're also going to have the need for energy, of course, since that glucose is not being used by the body. So you'll have um, lipolysis of adipose tissue, so fatty acids are being released into the body. The liver will then manage all of these free fatty acids by metabolizing them to keto acids. So helpful, liver. This then drops the pH of the blood since you have all these acids in the blood that you're not excreting, and it causes metabolic acidosis. So you're going to have respiratory compensation. They're called small respirations. So they're really rapid and really deep, trying to kind of expel some of that CO2, expel those acids to raise that pH back to the normal range. You're actually going to be able to smell those keto acids in someone's breath. So they'll kind of have a fruity acetone sort of scent in their breath. You'll also have extracellular hydrogen being exchanged for intracellular potassium. So you're going to have hyperkalemia like you would in regular acidosis. So that is DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis. We also have in type 2 diabetes a hyperosmolar hyperglycemic state. So the patient has hyperglycemia, but the cells are still unable to use it due to that lock of loss of insulin and reduction in insulin secretion, and the liver is unable to store it. Once again, we have glucagon being released because there are still major cellular demands for glucose. So they're going to have polyphagia because their cells are saying, hey, we need energy. Please feed us. You're still going to have that osmotic diuresis. So you're going to have polydipsia and polyuria. But the presence of some endogenous insulin is going to prevent a lot of those major productions of keto acids from the adipose tissue. So you're still going to have the risk of vascular collapse from hypovolemia and electrolyte imbalance, but you're not going to have that characteristic acidosis that you would see in DK. Okay, so moving on to insulin and drug that you would use for diabetes. 
So explain the normal physiology of insulin. So pro-insulin is secreted by the beta islet cells of the pancreas. And we have that C-peptide loop in pro-insulin that's going to connect the A chain and the B chain of insulin. So C-peptide is going to be cleaved and that will form insulin. And one really helpful thing with this, if C-peptide is present in the body, we know that the patient does not have type 1 diabetes since that would indicate that the body is producing insulin. And the general way that insulin is secreted, you're going to have about 20 to 40 units secreted daily in a natural system. Um, you're going to have basal insulin secreted all day long, and the body will release bolus insulin with meals to help um, bring down that blood glucose after carb digestion. So when you're giving insulin to a patient, you want it to mimic natural secretion. So you'll have the basal long-acting insulin kind of going throughout the entire day and overnight and rapid-acting insulin following meals. Describe the use of basal and bolus insulin by using an insulin pump and subcutaneous medications. So an insulin pump can only use short-acting insulins and you can only have one type of insulin in there at a time. Um, using bolus insulin allows really tight control of the blood glucose, especially through infusion pumps, and the basal rate can be adjusted with boluses being calculated based on carbs. Describe the types of insulin and how these classes of medications control blood sugars. So we have short duration, and this includes both rapid acting and slower acting. Rapid acting is going to be quicker acting, of course, and it's also more expensive. Slow acting is sometimes the only option patients' insurance covers, but it is slower. So we have our rapid acting. So this is going to be given with meals about 5 to 10 minutes before the patient eats. It has an onset of 10 to 15 minutes, a peak 1.1 to 1.5 hours after um, giving it, and then a duration of 3 to 5 hours. So it could be given subcutaneously via pump or via IV. It is a clear preparation, and our drugs here are Humalog and Novolog. So I kind of remember this as logging the shortest amount of hours possible. You don't feel like working. We also have slower acting. So these are also going to be given with meals, but the onset is 30 to 40 minutes after administration. The peak is two to three hours, and duration is about six and a half hours. This could be given subcutaneously through pump, IM, or IV. And our two here are both going to be R. So Humalin R and Novolin R. And I kind of think of that as ready. They're ready to be administered. We also have our long-acting insulin. So we have intermediate-acting, long-duration, and ultra-long-duration. So the intermediate-acting are given twice daily to control blood glucose between meals and at night. So they have an onset of 1 to 3 hours, peak 5 to 8 hours, and duration of 14 to 18 hours. So they contain a substance called NPH. This is going to be slowing absorption. So it can only be given subcutaneously. It could never be given IV because that would completely prevent the effects of NPH and slowing that absorption. And so it would be faster acting and could really drop the blood pressure or blood sugar extremely quickly. So our two um, NPH intermediate acting insulins, Novolin N and Humulin N. I would just remember that the N, I think of it as not now, NN and not now. And this is a cloudy preparation. We also have long duration. So this is going to be an analog, which is a modified form of human insulin that's intended to prolong its action. 
So we have Lantis and Levamir, and I think LL long duration. They're the only ones that start with L as far as our insulins. So Lantis has an onset one to two hours. It has no peak at all, and it has a duration of 22 to 24 hours. Levamir has an onset of one to two hours, a peak of eight to 10 hours, and duration 12 to 24 hours. These drugs are usually given at night, but it could vary. It's only subcutaneous. Once again, we're not mixing it and not giving an IV. It is a clear preparation. We finally have our ultra long duration. So we have Traceba and Trujuro. So they have onsets about 60 to 90 minutes. They do not have a peak and they both have durations over 24 hours. And these are going to be extremely effective at mimicking the body's natural basal insulin. We also have combination insulin, and this is only going to be used for people with stable conditions. So the preparations are pre-mixed, so you have a certain amount of shorter acting and a certain amount of longer acting. And so since you can't alter the dosage of the short acting to kind of bolus it if you had a high carb meal or something, it would only be for people with stable conditions. There are are different concentrations available, and the big benefit here is that it eliminates the need for multiple injections, and this is also only sub-Q. Explain how to mix R and N insulin. So if we remember R stands for ready, so you're gonna that's gonna be the rapid acting. And N stands for not now. So the order that you want to do, cloudy, clear, clear, cloudy. So you're gonna inject the air into cloudy first and then inject your air into clear, withdraw the medication from clear, and then withdraw the medication from cloudy. So you must always draw up the clear slash R insulin before drawing up the cloudy slash N insulin. So you have that protamine in the N insulin. And if that cloudy protamine entered the clear, it would slow the absorption of the insulin and affect the onset and duration of action. So we don't want to do that. Whereas drawing the clear before cloudy does not affect the cloudy in any way. Okay, moving on to some of our medications, mostly for type 2. Describe the mechanism of action, side effects, and special special considerations of biguanides, sulfonorias, TZDs, alpha-glucoside inhibitors, DPP-4 inhibitors, GLP agonists, amylin, and SGLT-2 co-transport inhibitors. So sulfonorias are is secretagogue, so they're going to promote the secretion of insulin. We are currently using the second generation drug, which is glomeparide. It allows lower doses and decreased drug interactions compared to the first generation. So once again, the action is secretagogue, so it's going to promote the insulin secretion by the pancreas. Considerations if someone had sulfa allergies, that could be a problem, and you can kind of see that sulfa in the name, sulfonorurea. Um, An adverse effect is hypoglycemia, which is really the case for most insulins and diabetes medications. We also have our megalitinides, megalitinides and slash glinides. So these are also secretagogues. Our medication here is going to be natglinide. And the action, once again, they promote insulin secretion by the pancreas, results in a rapid insulin release, has a half-life of one and a half hours and duration of four hours. And the big consideration here, you do not want to mix natglinide with lopid, which is a type of fibrate, because it can increase the mechanism of action of both drugs. 
We also have our bigonides. So our example here is metformin. That's the prototype drug. It has a number of actions. So metformin decreases glucose production by the liver. It increases muscular glucose uptake and it decreases glucose absorption by the gut. So the liver is not making glucose. The muscles are taking up more glucose and the intestines are not absorbing glucose the same. So it's preventing hyperglycemia in three ways. There is also a lower risk of hypoglycemia since it's not actively causing insulin release. It's just promoting the decrease of blood glucose in other ways. So some adverse effects, you could have really severe diarrhea, also nausea, vomiting, weight loss, and anorexia. B12 deficiency is somewhat common. So you want to make sure you're checking those levels at least once a year with metformin. Um, you can very rarely have lactic acidosis, which occurs when the drug inhibits mitochondrial lactic acid oxidation. So a couple of considerations for this drug, you want to use caution in patients with heart failure and renal impairment. So if someone has a GFR of 30 to 45, you would want to be cautious, but it could still be appropriate. If someone had a GFR less than 30, you would absolutely not be using it. That's a hard contraindication. Um, after a patient received contrast for a CT or other imaging, you'd want to withhold the medication for at least two days, check the creatinine, and you can restart again if it's normal, since it does kind of have that nephrotoxicity. And finally, you do not want to consume alcohol in this drug. It increases the risk of lactic acidosis. Metformin can also sometimes be used for the treatment of polycystic ovary syndrome. Our next class of drugs are the thiazolidinediones, also known as the glitazones or the TZDs. So our prototype here is pioglitazone. This drug makes cells more responsive to insulin, which decreases insulin resistance. So you'd only be using it in type 2 diabetes because you need to have that insulin present for the mechanism of action. Some adverse effects, you can have severe hypoglycemia in the presence of insulin, which makes sense. The cells are more responsive to it. You could also have severe fluid retention, and this is profound fluid retention. So you would not be using this for heart failure or kidney failure patients. You could also see bladder cancer, hepatotoxicity, and an increase in the mechanism of action of statins. So megalitonides interfere with lopid and the TZDs interfere with statins. We also have the alpha-glucosidase inhibitors, and our example here is acarbose. So the action, it's going to inhibit carbohydrate digestion and absorption and decrease that postprandial rise in glucose. So if you're not absorbing those carbs, you're not going to have that spike in blood glucose. It doesn't make sense. The adverse effects also make sense. If you're not digesting, those carbs are remaining in your GI tract, so you're going to have severe flatulence, cramps, distension, and diarrhea, and those are pretty significant side effects. Next, we have the DPP-4 inhibitors, which are known as the glyptins, and our example here is cetagliptin. So it, once again, inhibits DPP-4, which is the hormone that breaks down in cretins. So overall, it increases stimulation of insulin secretion, so that's since that's what the incretins are promoting. It is going to also decrease the postprandial release of glucagon. It's generally well tolerated, but the adverse effects include pancreatitis and pancreatic cancer. The GLP-1 receptor agonists are eventide and liraglutide. So these are incretin mimetics 
that slow gastric emptying, stimulate insulin release, inhibit glucagon release, and suppress appetite. And so these particular drugs, you do have a risk of hypoglycemia and pancreatitis, and they can only be given subcutaneously. So it makes sense. GLP-1 is the receptor on the pancreas that's um, receiving those incretins. So if you have an incretin mimetic, it's going to stimulate the GLP-1 receptor. Okay, next we have amylin, synthetic amylin. This is going to be the drug pramilintide, and it kind of has amylin in there. So I think of it as like a tide of amylin entering the body. So this synthetic amylin is going to be slowing the glucose absorption of the small intestine, suppressing glucagon secretion, delaying gastric emptying to cause satiety. So all of those things that endogenous amylin would do already in your body. So some adverse effects, you could have severe hypoglycemia, nausea, slow intestinal motility, and weight loss. And our last class of diabetes medications are the SGLT2 inhibitors. Um, and our drug here is empagliflozin. So this drug is going to prevent the reabsorption of glucose from the urine filtrate. So that's overall going to reduce the glucose that's returned to the blood and increase the amount of glucose that's excreted through the urine. And so I think it stands for the sodium glucose something transporter. So it's inhibiting that transport. And this is a highly, highly effective drug. It also decreases the risk of cardiovascular events. So there's talk about putting basically all patients with cardiovascular problems and diabetes on this drug. Some adverse effects. Um, you have a really high risk of female genital mycotic infections and severe UTI, which also makes sense. If you have a really high concentration of sugar excreted in the urine, this is going to feed bacterial growth and fungal growth. They love the sugar. It also causes an osmotic diuresis since you have that really high volume of sugar concentrated in the urine, so it's going to cause a dehydration, and it'll also result in sodium loss, which is perfect for patients who have heart failure or hypertension. And there is a risk of ketoacidosis with this drug as well. And then just one more detail about diabetes itself. If you're looking for the mechanism to diagnose diabetes, you're looking for a hemoglobin A1c greater than 6.5. So that would indicate diabetes. Um, if a patient had a fasting plasma glucose greater than 126 on two occasions, that would also in indicate diabetes. Um, a two-hour plasma glucose, so they give you glucose or like a very high concentrated sugar and then they check your glucose after two hours. If that were over 200, that would indicate diabetes. And also just any random plasma glucose check that is over 200 would be diabetes. Okay, this is the review for module 12 genetics. So objective one, describe the structure and function of DNA as compared to RNA. So DNA is in the form of a twisted double helix. So it's double-stranded. You have phosphoric acid and deoxyribose sugar that's connected by nitrogenous bases. So our nitrogenous bases are adenine, guanine, thymine, and cytosine. So we have the purines, which are adenine and guanine that bind with the pyridines, cytosine and thymine. So that'll be ATCG when you're looking at those nucleotides. RNA, on the other hand, is single-stranded and is made with a ribose sugar. And it has uracil as a pyram pyramidine base instead of cytosine.
instead of thymine, sorry. Okay, discuss the processes of DNA mutation. So mutations result from alterations in chromosomal structures. So there could be a break in one or more chromosomes with rearrangement, a rearrangement or deletion of the chromosome parts. So this would be influenced by radiation, x-rays, chemicals, and viral infections. So that includes things like the Epstein-Barr virus or the hepatitis virus. HPV. Excuse me. Describe the processes of transcription, gene splicing, and translation. So transcription is occurs in the nucleus. It's when RNA polymerase attaches to the DNA and produces messenger RNA or mRNA which is an exact copy of the DNA. We also have gene splicing, which also occurs in the nucleus. And this is kind of the process of processing that mRNA. So introns are removed, extrons are kept and meant to be expressed, and bases might be added with the mRNA being cut and spliced to create a template for the exact desired proteins. We then have translation where the mRNA moves into the cytoplasm and acts as the pattern that tells cells how to align amino acids to form proteins. So tRNA or transport RNA is going to carry amino acids into position by matching its anticodon to each mRNA codon. Also, we have mRNA or R ribosomal RNA, excuse me, rRNA in the ribosome that's moving tRNA into position and connecting those amino acids together to form the protein. So mRNA is our transport and our template. tRNA is bringing those amino acids in with its anticodons to match up to the codons. And then rRNA is helping tRNA into position and connecting the amino acids together. Identify the different mechanisms of mutation and discuss the effects of these mutations on survival. So a gene mutation is a biochemical event like a nucleotide change, deletion, or insertion that results in a new allele. So you could have monosomy where individuals only inherit one chromosome out of the pair, and an example of that would be Turner syndrome. You also have polosomy, where individuals inherit more than two chromosomes. So you have Klinefelter syndrome, men inherit two X's and one Y. Trisomy 21, which is an extra chromosome on 21. We could also have mosaicism, which is the presence of two plus populations of cells with different genotypes in one individual. And kind of the classic example of this is someone with different colored eyes. Differentiate between genotype and phenotype and give examples of each. So genotype is a person's genetic material itself. So that would be a gene that coded for something. We also have phenotypes, which is the person's physical characteristics, such as hair color, eye color, height, etc. And phenotype depends on both environmental factors and the genetic material. Differentiate between autosomal dominant, autosomal recessive, and X-linked recessive inheritance modes. Autosomal dominant is when an affected parent has a 50% chance of transmitting the disorder to each offspring. So unaffected relatives won't transmit the disorder, since if they had the gene, it would be affected. So 50% of offspring will have the gene that will be expressed, so they will have the condition, and 50% will be normal. Um, an example of this is Marfan syndrome. So this is a connective tissue disorder on the long arm of chromosome 15. Other things that are autosomal dominant include hypercholesteremia, Huntington's disease, neurofibromatosis, and familial adenomatous polyptosis. polyptosis. Um, autosomal recessive inheritance occurs when both parents are affected or carriers, and it's going to affect both sexes equally once again. 
So if both parents are carriers, so neither of them have the disease, but both have the recessive gene, 25% of their offspring will be affected, 50% of their offspring will become carriers, and 25% will just be normal, healthy, non-carrier offspring. So some examples of this, cystic fibrosis, there's a defect in proteins that regulates chloride, so it affects lung and pancreas function. We have Wilson disease, which is impaired copper metabolism, PKU, when they lack the enzyme to digest protein, and Tay-Sachs disease, which is a lysosomal storage disorder. We also have X-linked recessive disorders. So this is when female heterozygotes are rarely affected while all males with the gene are affected. So if we think about that double knockout or kind of two, two knockout um, theory, the female heterozygotes are going to have two X's. So if one of them is affected, they still have a backup which can function normally. Whereas the males only have one X chromosome. So if they have the affected gene, they're going to express it since they don't have a backup X. So if a mother is a carrier, the sons have a 50% chance of inheriting the disease, while daughters have a 50% chance of being carriers, once again because they have that backup X gene that's normal that they inherit from their father. If the father is affected, the daughters will become carriers, and the sons will not be affected or carriers, since they are not passing their X on, they're passing their Y on to the sons. So some examples of this, you have fragile X syndrome in which you see mental retardation, facial abnormalities, and hyperextensible joints. You also have hemophilia, which are bleeding disorders. To find the terms penetrance and expressivity, so penetrance is the ability of a gene to express its function, and this is the percentage of how many people with that particular genotype are going to have the corresponding phenotype. So think of how it's kind of penetrating the phenotype. So for example, the BRCA1 gene has a high penetrance. So if you have the gene, there's an 85% chance of expressing breast cancer. We also have expressivity, which is the manner in which the gene is expressed. So it could be mild to severe. So someone with a family history of hyperlipidemia could have a mild or severe form. Okay, moving on to module 13, cancer. Objective number one, define proto-oncogene and tumor suppressor genes. So proto-oncogenes are normal genes that control cell division. So with mutation, they become an oncogene. So this could result in unlimited or abnormal division, the creation of abnormal proteins, too much or too little of a protein, and inappropriate packaging or delivery of proteins. We also have tumor suppressor genes. Um, these are growth in inhibitors regulating genes that include the repair gene p53 and with mutation they also become oncogenes so this is when they fail to suppress tumor growth and initiate apoptosis and dna damaged cells so it's allowing those cells to continue growing and the tumors to proliferate summarize the main states of the cell cycle g0 g1 s g2 and m and briefly describe what occurs in each stage so G0 is our resting phase, so the cell is functioning and working normally. Growth factors will then cause the cells to move from G0 to G1. In G1, the cell begins to prepare for mitosis by increasing organelles, cytoskeletal components, and proteins. S is the synthesis phase where DNA replication occurs and centrioles begin to replicate. In G2, the cell produces more proteins, the chromosome is assessed and repaired, and the cell prepares to divide. In M, M phase, if no errors are found, cellular division or mitosis will occur. 
So there are checkpoints throughout the cycle carried out by cyclins that will determine whether the cell has grown large enough to divide, the DNA has duplicated correctly, and the cell has enough proteins to separate the chromosomes. We also have a couple aspects of tissue renewal and repair. So cell proliferation is just cell division, so increasing the number of cells. Cell differentiation, on the other hand, is the process of specialization where new cells acquire the structure and function of the cells that they're replacing. So just for examples, you could have cells with low specialization, which are epithelial cells, mid-level specialization, like liver cells, or highly specialized cells, like cardiac cells. And apoptosis is the programmed cell death that eliminates unwanted cells. Identify the genetic basis of cancer. So for mechanisms, we have to have a mutation of a proto-oncogene and or as tumor suppressor genes that allow that kind of unregulated growth. So mutations will create oncogenes that allow that uncontrolled cellular division. Um, inability to initiate apoptosis could also be present. You also have epigenetic mechanisms, which are those cellular mechanisms that control gene expression. So alterations in expression could promote oncogenes if a normal gene is present, but the mechanism to turn on or off the gene isn't functioning properly. So this does not require actual genetic changes to promote cancer since it's epigenetic. The process of oncogenesis, we have initiation where that initial mutation occurs. Promotion is when mutated cells are stimulated to divide. And progression is when tumor cells compete and develop more mutations, which makes them increasingly aggressive. Some contributing factors to the develop of cancer, development of cancer include heredity, hormones, carcinogens, oncogenic viruses like Epstein-Barr, immunologic mechanisms, angiogenesis is also a contributor, which is the production the production of angiogenic factor or the loss of angiogenic inhibitors. So differentiation of mutations, so you could have very well differentiated cell mutations that would form working or benign tumors. So these typically these well differentiated cells are unable to divide or reproduce, which include cardiac and neural cells. We also have poorly differentiated cells that mutate, and these form highly malignant tumors. So the healthy version of poorly differentiated cells would be the kind of parent or progenitor cells, which include liver, skin, and blood. We could also have undifferentiated rapidly undifferentiated rapidly dividing cells that are mutating to form rapidly dividing tumors. And this would come from undifferentiated stem cells that can produce a really large volume of progenitor cells when needed. And just some general manifestations of cancer. You have changes in organ function, which include organ damage, inflammation, and failure. You have local effects with, of tumors, which include nerve and vein compression and also GI obstruction. There are also nonspecific signs of tissue breakdown as it's being broken down to fuel that tumor. This includes protein wasting and bone breakdown. So you would see fatigue, anemia, and sleep disorders. You can also have perineoplastic syndrome. So this is when tumors are producing abnormal endocrine hormones, coagulation factors, or hematopoietic factors. So for example, small cell lung cancers can produce ADH, antidiuretic hormone. Pancreatic lung cancers can produce coagulation factors, and those are two examples. You could also have cancer cachexia syndrome, in which you see weight loss, muscle wasting, weakness, anorexia, and anemia due to the depletion of resources in the body by that cancer.
Describe the action of telomerase. So at the end of each chromosome, there are telomeres, which are those DNA protein caps. With repeated division, the telomeres are going to shorten until apoptosis is triggered. However, tumor cells have telomerase, which is an enzyme that is continually replacing the lost telomere to preserve it. Telomerase allows for persistent proliferation without any triggers to initiate apoptosis. So this is something that would usually only be present in nerve cells, but is present in tumor cells so they can continue growing indefinitely. Differentiate between benign and malignant tumors. So tumor just means a swelling, which could be inflammation or cellular overgrowth. So a benign tumor is well differentiated and contained. And these are going to be named with the tissue name plus OMA. So the cells of this tumor is going to, they're going to appear similar to the origin tissue. So if it was a skin cancer, it would look like a skin cell. The tumor might still perform the normal function of the tissue, like potentially hormone secretion that could actually lead to oversecretion. These tumors typically have a capsule around them and they don't invade. They don't invade other tissues. The problems that you would see with them, though, they could crowd out other tissue and cause damage by compressing organs and taking resources from other aspects of the body. We also have malignant tumors, which are undifferentiated and not contained. These would be named with a couple of varieties. So if it was an epithelial tumor, you would have the tissue name plus carcinoma. Or if it was a neural, tissue, neural tumor, it would be the tissue name plus sarcoma. So this is when the tumor is not similar to the origin tissue and it does not resemble normal adult cells. And they're going to be growing very rapidly with tumors growing and dividing quickly. The cells can mutate and even change type and the tumor has no clear boundaries and it will be sending out little feet out into the surrounding tissue so it's spreading. Malignant tumors also do not perform normal tissue or organ functions. Though it could inappropriately secrete hormones conventionally secreted by other tissues. Malignant tumors spread and cause metastases and take resources. They can also compress and destroy nearby tissue with growth. Describe the characteristics of cancer cells. So they're not going to be maturing and differentiating normally to do the job of that tissue. Instead, they're proliferating to form new tissue. So they're not also not going to be waiting for signals to start new tissue growth. Normally, cells would have to wait for that growth factor to stimulate division. But these cancer cells operate outside that, so they are unresponsive to the feedback systems that usually control growth in normal tissue. Cancer cells also ignore signals to stop dividing. In normal tissue, a total number of cells would remain relatively constant, with a new growth only existing to replace the dead cells. But in tumors, they're going to continue to grow and divide until death without any intervention. Cancer cells also extend tissue boundaries, so normal cells are typically segregated by function, but cancer cells are going to invade other tissues, which are those metastases. They also have general immortality due to the telomerase. Define considerations when treating cancer. So first off, this is an important concept, we have a growth fraction. So this is the ratio of proliferating cells to cells resting and working in G0. 
So when you have a higher percentage of proliferating cells in relation to cells working in G0, that would mean tissue has a high growth fraction. If you had mostly G0 cells, you would have a low growth fraction. So chemo drugs are actually much more toxic against high growth fraction tissue, which include proliferating cells, since they generally target DNA synthesis or mitosis. This means that they're also going to be toxic to healthy cells with a high growth, growth fraction. So this includes hair, bone marrow, skin, and the GI tract. There are a large number of obstacles to chemotherapy. So one, chemotherapy drugs, which are cytotoxic, are toxic to normal cells. So this means that both health and healthy and neoplastic cells are similar, so you would want to try to target unique features of the neoplastic cells. A true cure also requires 100% cell kill. So if we're thinking about first-order kinetics applied to this, a constant percentage of cells are going to be killed with each round, so each dose must be equally strong. Host defenses contribute minimally to cell kill, since immunosuppression is a common adverse effect of these drugs and the immune system is rarely able to recognize cell tumors as invaders because they do have MHC1 complex. Not knowing when to stop treatment is also a problem. There's no visible endpoint since less than 1 million cancer cells are going to be undetectable in the body, so it's really not possible to have true early detection which means that METs are more likely to have formed and will be less responsive to chemo and the patient could be debilitated by the time it's diagnosed. Cell tumors also respond poorly. They have a low growth fraction since many cells are in G0 slash resting. So you'll also have a limited blood supply to the tumor slash core. So it would be possible to debulk a tumor to decrease the number of G0 cells and increase the vulnerable cells by recruiting them, and that's called recruitment to debulk it. Other problems include drug resistance. Random DNA mutations will cause an efflux mechanism, which is known as P-glycoprotein, to pump drugs out of the cell. Anti-cancer drugs also kill non-mutated cells that aren't resistant, so the mutated cells then have more resources to reproduce and multi-resistant cells are created. Tumors can be heterogeneous, which means that subpopulations of tumors have varied characteristics and would be more difficult to target with a single drug regimen. And finally, there's limited access to tumor cells. If a tumor was located in a place protected by the blood-brain barrier or in an area with really poor blood supply, drugs would not be able to reach the tumor. Some strategies for successful treatment using intermittent chemotherapy is successful. So doses are given, you wait for a period, and then dose again. Since cancer cells are more fragile, they don't rebound the same way that healthy cells can. So that cancer cells are not going to return to baseline while the, while the healthy cells can kind of return to a normal functioning level. So intermittent chemotherapy allows the body to heal while still treating cancer. Combination therapy is also really important. It decreases resistance, increases cancer cell kill, and reduces injury to normal cells. So random mutations are going to be unlikely to be resistant to multiple drugs, and also multiple drug actions are going to broaden the cell kill, and if you use combination drugs without overlapping toxicities, it's going to increase that cell kill without increasing toxicity. Some common toxicities include bone marrow suppression. This is due to the high proliferation rate of bone marrow. So you would see things like infection risk from the neutropenia, anemia from the decreased red blood cells, and bleeding from the thrombocytopenia, which are decreased platelets. 
in the GI tract. Um, these drugs are going to affect the epithelial lining, so you'll have diarrhea, stomatitis, and poor nutrition. Um, a really valuable combination includes odansetron, which is zofran, and dexamethasone combination to relieve those GI side effects. You also see alopecia, where since hair follicles are rapidly dividing, hyperuricemia is common when you're breaking down the large number of cells that DNA in the tumors is going to cause the release of uric acid when it's broken down. Extravasation, extravasation is always a risk. Um, the tissue damage from drugs can occur when the drug infiltrates surrounds the surround infiltrates the surrounding tissue. So using a central venous access device or a port is very common to reduce that risk. You also have carcinogenesis, um, which is damage to DNA from treatments that then causes another type of cancer. Okay, identify and describe the main classes of anti-cancer drugs in terms of their main mechanisms of action. So cytotoxic agents are the most commonly used variety. They're common commonly known as cancer chemotherapy. They directly kill the cell, and cytotoxic agents are most toxic to tissues with high growth fractions since they're more active against cells that are proliferating rather than remaining in G0. We also have hormone and hormone antagonists. These modulate the growth of hormone-dependent cancers like prostate and breast. We also have biologic response modifiers that support the immune system in fighting the cancer and targeted drugs bind with specific molecular targets to prevent tumor growth. Differentiate between cell cycle phase specific and cell cycle phase non-specific anti-cancer drugs. So cytotoxic drugs can be either specific to a phase of the cell cycle or not. Specific drugs tend to affect the S and M phases, which are the synthesis involving DNA replication, and then the mitosis itself, phases of the cell cycle. So some S-phase-specific drugs, the anti-metabolites, including methotrexate, anti-tumor antibiotics like doxorubicin, and topoisomerase, topoisomerase inhibitors. M-specific drugs include the mitotic inhibitors, which makes sense, and mitosis, and non-specific include the alkylating agents. Compare and contrast the basic mechanisms of action, clinical indications, and general toxicities of anti-cancer medications. So the alkalizing agents and slash platinum compounds, the alkyl group forms abnormal crosslinks between DNA strands, so they aren't able to split. Drug resistance is common. The cell would just be producing increased production of DNA repair enzymes. We have the anti-metabolites that disrupt metabolic processes like DNA, RNA synthesis, and protein synthesis. They also, so they move into the metabolic process by acting like an analog for an essential component, but then don't function as a, the endogenous compound would, so they stop the process of synthesis. And one example, methotrexate is a folic acid analog. We also have leucovorin rescue. So this is going to be used with methotrexate. So since methotrexate inhibits folic acid entry in cells, there's decreased DNA, RNA, and protein production. Leucovorin is a form of folic acid that bypasses that metabolic block of methotrexate because cancer cells are not able to uptake leucovorin. So healthy cells are able to get this alternative form of folic acid, but cancer cells can't. 
We have anti-tumor antibiotics. So our prototype here is doxorubicin. It acts during the S phase, the synthesis phase, and it's going to inhibit DNA and RNA synthesis by forming a complex with DNA. It's only administered via IV since it's toxic to the GI system and the major adverse effects. You can see cardiotoxic delayed cardiomyopathy and bone marrow suppression. It can sometimes be used with dexrazoxane, which protects against that delayed cardiomyopathy, but it does increase the myelosuppression. Mitotic inhibitors act during the end phase of cell division and prevent cell division by binding to the spindles during mitosis. The main adverse effect is peripheral neuropathy that can be a lifelong problem. The toipoisomerase inhibitors act during the S phase of the cell cycle. They prevent DNA from separating to repair breaks or damage before replication, so they also cause bone marrow suppression. We have gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist. This is lupoprolide, so it is going to cause an initial increase in the release of gonadotropin-releasing hormone from the pituitary hormone. This is going to then downregulate the androgen receptors on the testes to control growth long-term. So that initial spike in the amount of hormone stimulation is going to downregulate and it won't necessarily recover. So it doesn't actually block androgen release and is only going to affect testosterone. And you would have an initial increase in growth followed by a decrease. We also have androgen receptor blockers. So these are going to block the receptors to deprive the cells of all androgens, testicular, adrenal, and prostate that are necessary for growth. So it would be given with luprolide to suppress the initial growth. So you're only going to use it in that initial luprolide therapy in advanced forms of prostate cancer. It is not a long-term drug. And our drug here is, our drug here is flutamide. We also have our CIRMs, our selective estrogen receptor modulators, including tamoxifen and raloxifene. These are breast cancer drugs that block tumor estrogen receptors while stimulating other estrogen receptors in the body. So it has some positive effects. It's going to increase bone density, decrease LDL, and increase HDL. But there's also a risk of thromboembolism, endometriosis, and endometrial cancer. These drugs can also be used for prevention in high-risk individuals who are prone to cancer. We have aromatase inhibitors, and our prototype is anastrozole. So this is a postmenopausal breast cancer drug that reversibly binds to aromatase, which inhibits the conversion of androgens to estrogen in peripheral tissue. So this is only appropriate in postmenopausal women or women who have had oophorectomies since younger women are still going to be producing endogenous estrogen that would naturally be feeding the tumor. So adverse effects, you can think of it kind of like hot flashes. You'll have mild flushing, headache, nausea, vomiting, and hypertension. There is also an increased risk of osteoporosis from estrogen depletion. HER2 receptor blockers, our prototype here is trastuzumab. So this is a monoclonal antibody for breast cancers that overexpress HER2 receptors, and these are the receptors that respond to growth factor. So since HER2 is a receptor that controls cell growth and allows proliferation, having excessive numbers is negative, and having a drug that binds to these receptors to stop proliferation is a positive thing. Adverse effects include cardiotoxicity, hypersensitivity, and pulmonary events. We also have monoclonal antibodies with 
which is rituximab. And this is going to be used for lymphomas by preventing cell cycle initiation. The adverse effects include tumor lysis syndrome. Since it's used for lymphomas, these are generally pretty large tumors that are destroyed and the cells are going to dump their contents. So you'll have elevated uric acid, phosphorus, potassium, and sodium. We also have some small molecules that inhibit intracellular signaling to prevent cellular division. And this would be gefitinib, which is used for lung cancer. Our last drug class are angiogenesis inhibitors. So angiogenesis is really important to allow tumor nutrition and growth since it's kind of causing that proliferation of blood vessels. So lock, blocking it prevents that proliferation. And our example here is bevacizumab. Summarize the desired and unwanted effects of anti-estrogens and selective estrogen receptor modifiers when used for cancer. So these are going to block estrogen receptors found in the tumor to prevent growth while stimulating other estrogen receptors. So the positives increase bone density, decreased LDL, increased HDL, while the negatives are thromboembolism, endometriosis, and endometrial cancer. Describe the paradoxic effects of luprolide on androgen-dependent advanced prostate cancer. So prostate cells are androgen-dependent, so they are reliant on androgens. Luprolide increases the pituitary release of gonadotropin-releasing hormone, which would cause an initial increase in cell growth and testosterone. But the pre presence of this hormone in higher levels would cause an eventual down-regulation of testosterone receptors in the testes, and so they're going to be producing less testosterone. So you'd see an initial increase in growth, followed by a progressive decline in growth. Okay, so module 14, infection. Differentiate between colonization and infection. So colonization is when microorganisms are present and growing at the site, and infection is both the presence and division within a host that's causing injury to the host. Differentiate between prions, viruses, bacterial, and fungal infections. So viruses, you're going to have no organized cellular structure, just a prion, capsid around a DNA or RNA nucleic acid core. Viruses also don't contain any metabolic enzymes and are incapable of replication outside of a host cell. So the way they infect the host, they insert their genome into the host DNA and use that metabolic machinery to make new viruses. Bacteria are one-celled prokaryotes, so they don't have an organized nucleus or organelles. They just contain that single chromosome of DNA. They tend to live in colonies, also known as biofilms, and could be anaerobes or aerobes. They could produce spores and culture. When they're cultured, they'll be distinctive colors, which can help with identification. And bacteria might produce toxins that damage and invade the host cell. Uh, one way that we identify them is with gram staining. So you'll put like a purple stain on it and then rinse it and put a pink stain. And so if it's gram positive, it has a thick cell wall and it's going to stain purple. And if it's gram, so positive purple. If it's gram negative, it has a thinner cell wall and another membrane and it's going to stain red. Other types of bacteria, you could have spirochets, which are spiral-shaped anaerobes. They're very long coiled filaments that tend to live in aquatic environments. We also have mycoplasma, which lack cell walls, so they are going to be resistant to cell wall antibiotics and typically live commensally. 
We also have rickettsia and chlamydia. So these are obligate intracellular pathogens. So they're like viruses. They have rigid cell walls and they produce asexually. So rickettsia and chlamydia cannot live outside of a host. Fungi, we have a few different types. We have budding geese. We have molds, which um, reproduce by filaments. Um, most infections that are fungal are going to be superficial due to the need for lower body temperature, but they could still be systemic and life-threatening. Canada is a yeast. Canada albicans is the yeast that causes vesiculopustules that enlarge and can rupture. Um, they can also cause maceration, fistulas, and satellite lesions around that central area. Dermatophytes are known as ringworm. Casually, they're a mold infection and they're considered to be tinea. And that's going to be named for the location it's found on the body. So... Tinea corporis would be the body, tinea capitis would be the head, um, those are the main ones. Parasites are animals that infect and cause disease in other animals. So we have protozoa, which include the diseases malaria, amoebic dysentery, and giardiasis. Giardiasis. Helminths are worms, so we have roundworms, tapeworms, and flukes. Arthropods are ticks, mosquitoes, mites, lice, and fleas. And ectoparasites live on the surface of the host. So we have scabies and pediculosis, also known as lice. Discuss the chain of infection and how to disrupt the chain of infection. So the chain of infection is each component required for the spread of a pathogen. So it starts with a reservoir, which could be human, animal, insect, or soil, among others. Could also be water. You have to have a portal of exit, which tends to be kind of the nasal mucosa, oral mucosa, but could be other things. You have to have a mode of transmission, which could be an insect bite, nasal droplets, or semen, for example. A portal of entry, aka how it gets into the next victim's body, it could be nasal oral mucosa, skin abrasions, punctures, things like that. And finally, you must have a susceptible victim. So someone who is vulnerable to the infection, maybe is malnourished, not immunized, or immune compromised. So to break the chain of infection, you just have to break it at any of the points in that infection chain. So you could destroy the reservoir through mosquito eradication, garbage disposal, sewage treatment, anything like that, blocking the portal of exit. A lot of these things are the protective mechanisms we use in the hospital, masking, gloving, isolation, and condom use too, safe sex practices. Blocking the mode of transmission would be sterile technique, body substance isolation, hand washing, and cooking food really well when you're preparing it. To block the portal of entry, once again, could be masking, gloving, and condom use, and then to reduce the susceptibility of victims, this would be things like vaccination, optimal rest and nutrition, not smoking, not using alcohol, all of those kind of health promotion things that we consider. Evaluate the stages of infectious disease. So incubation is the first stage. The pathogen is actively replicating, but it's not producing recognizable symptoms yet. In the prodromal stage, you're going to have non-specific initial symptoms. The acute stage, the maximum symptoms and illness, kind of what you think of when you think of someone being sick. The convalescent stage involves containment and repair, so the patient is improving and resolution is total elimination of the pathogen. Differentiate between culture and serology and when it's appropriate to use these types of testing. So culture involves the growth of organisms from a sample, and it allows you to identify both the species and the sensitivity to antibiotics. 
On the other hand, serology is measuring the antibody titer after exposure to an infectious agent. So we have IgM, which is the antibody that is elevated during the acute phase, then falls, and IgG that remains elevated after the acute phase. So you can think of IgM as I am sick. In IgG, the pathogen is gone. Differentiate between systemic and superficial mycosis. So systemic, we have opportunistic, which include candidiasis and aspergillosis, and non-opportunistic, which are sporotrichosis, blastomycosis, and histoplasmosis. For our superficial mycoses, we have candidiasis and dermatophytes, which are also known as tinea. Describe mechanisms of action of antivirals. So viral infections are exceptionally difficult to treat since the virus is using the host replication mechanism, so it's really difficult to interfere without harming the host cell itself. So a few different drugs, we have purine nucleoside analog, acyclovir. So this is going to be suppressing the synthesis of viral DNA. It is used for varicella zoster and the herpes simplex virus. Some adverse effects include nephrotoxicity, which is generally pretty rare, local inflammation, and phlebitis. We also have gangcyclovir, which is a synthetic antiviral that suppresses replication of viral DNA. It treats cytomegalovirus, which is a member of the herpes family. And adverse effects include granulocytopenia and thrombocytopenia. We have oseltavir, which inhibits neuraminidase. This is also known as Tamiflu. So it prevents the cell from releasing the virus from those individual cells. It's used for prevention and treatment of influenza. We also have xanamivir, which inhibits neuraminidase, and it is a dry powdered, powdered inhaler. Differentiate between influenza A and B. So influenza virus A accounts for the vast majority of viral influenza. It's named based on the hema, hematoglutinin H that attaches to cell receptors to initiate the process of viral entry, and also N, which is neuraminidase, which enables the virus to be released from the host cell. Influenza A is also found in animals, and it accounts for the majority of severe flu outbreaks, so generally speaking, it's more severe and more common. Influenza B is less common, it's only found in humans, and it's less severe, so it's rarely treated. And just a note on for influenza A, we have anagenic drift, which are small changes over time in the H and N surface proteins. And we could also have anagenic shift, which is an abrupt major change in influenza A that either creates that creates new proteins altogether. Describe prevention and treatment of malaria. So malaria is a parasitic disease caused by protozoa. We have vivax malaria, in which some Sporozoites zoites remain dormant in the liver for up to two years. It's generally a milder disease. And then we have falciparum malaria, which is more serious, less common, and it does not remain in the liver, so no reflapses can occur. Treatment, we originally had quinine, which is not used since it had so many adverse effects. So we have chloroquine quine now, which is the drug of choice for acute attacks and prevention. So it works on the virus and red blood cells to inhibit protein synthesis. So chloroquine is working in red blood cells. Adverse effects include effects on the GI system, vision, and the liver. 
Primaquine is the drug of choice for relapse, so this is targeting virus that's in the liver itself. It can cause hemolysis in populations that are lacking the G6PD protein. So we're thinking kind of people from Mediterranean areas. For prophylaxis, you're not able to prevent primary infection, but you can prevent infection of red blood cells with chloroquine. So ideally, chloroquine and doxycycline could be used for suppression in areas that have strong resistance to chloroquine. Explain medications to treat ectoparasites. So we have topical drugs. These could be creams, gels, lotions, shampoos, etc. We have permethrin, and resistance can develop to that. And that's used for licensed scabies and also malathion. So adverse effects, since you're putting it on your skin, it makes sense. Skin irritation, which could include temporary burning, stinging, and numbness. Explain how bacterial resistance to antibiotics occurs. So you have spontaneous mutations, which are random changes in a microbe's DNA that really only causes resistance to one drug. You also have the option of conjugation. So this is when DNA is transferred from one bacterium to another via lateral gene transfer. So this means that that original bacterium had R factor, so the genes for both resistance and lateral transfer. This is not species specific, so it occurred occur between a microbe and the host normal flora. And this generally allows for the transfer of multiple resistances to be moved from one species to the next. Explain the fundamental difference between bactericidal and bacteriostatic drugs. Bactericidal are drugs that are directly lethal to bacteria at clin clinically achievable concentrations. So as if it's possible to give a dose that would kill the bacteria without too injuring the host too much. Bacteriostatic, on the other hand, are drugs that slow microbial growth but don't cause cell death. So these would not be appropriate choices in someone with depressed immune system since their immune system might not be able to handle even the weakened bacteria. State the main mechanisms by which microbes develop resistance to antimicrobial drugs. You could have decreased concentration of drug at site. So the microbe is decreasing uptake of the drug or increasing active export of the drug. The microbe could alter drug target receptors, so the microbe could potentially change its own structure, like even changing the, its ribosome to not respond to antibiotics. It could produce an antagonist, so it would be synthesizing that antagonist, which would block the drug receptors, and it could also just inactivate the drug with an enzyme, like beta-lactamase. Discuss the misuse of antibiotics and its general prevalence. So antibiotics can sometimes be used for untreatable infections like viruses and colds. Um, you would also see people undergoing incomplete treatment, so stopping their meds inappropriately when it's not indicated. It would be inappropriate to use antibiotics for fevers of unknown origin since you don't know if it's from an infectious process that could be treated with antibiotics. Improper dosage also contributes. It could be excessively high or low and lead to superinfection. The lack of identification of an organism, that organism might be resistant to the drug prescribed, but we wouldn't know that since we didn't do a culture insensitivity. Also the emission of surgical drainage. So when you have a large abscess in surgical sites or just in general, the core of that is lacking blood flow. It does not get good perfusion. So it needs to be drained because if you're giving antibiotics, they're not going to be able to receive be able to reach that central core of the abscess in good concentration since there isn't blood flow. Identify a prototype or representative example for each of the major classes of antibiotics. Describe the adverse effects and drug interactions associated with each prototype drug. So penicillins, we have 
penicillin, oxicillin, and amoxicillin. So penicillins are bactericidal. They weaken the cell wall, causing the bacteria to take up excess water and rupture. They do have a beta-lactam ring, so they're vulnerable to bacteria with beta-lactamase and altered penicillin binding protein, or PBP. So we've got penicillin, of course. They don't really make that anymore because so many bacteria are resistant. Oxicillin is a narrow-spectrum penicillase-resistant drug. That's actually going to be the um, determinant of MRSA. So if a bacteria species comes up resistant to oxicillin, it would be MRSA. Aspiris um, staph aureus, of course. Um, we also have amoxicillin, which is broad spectrum and causes rash and diarrhea. So some considerations. Penicillins inactivate aminoglycosides. And so we really want to make sure that would be like gentamicin is our prototype for that. So we want to make sure that we're giving penicillins, waiting one to two hours, and then giving the aminoglycoside. There is also the risk of MRSA, of course. And once again, it would be MRSA if Staph aureus was resistant to oxicillin. And you could also have type 1 hypersensitivities, which could range from mild to life-threatening, decrease over time, etc. A good alternative to penicillins in someone with a hypersensitivity would be cephalosporins if they only had mild allergies. If they had anaphylaxis, cephalosporins would not be an appropriate choice. So cephalosporins are bactericidal. They're similar to penicillins, but they are beta-lactamase resistant. So cephazoline is the first gen um, cephalosporin, so it's mildly active against gram-negative bacteria, mostly gram-positive, and it's not going to be effective in cerebral spinal fluid. Cephachlor is second generation cephalosporin, so it has increased effectiveness against gram-negative bacteria, increased resistance to beta-lactamase, and it's still not effective in CSF. General considerations, allergy, bleeding, um, the drug does interfere with vitamin K metabolism and also thrombophlebitis. Carbapenems include imipenem and meropenem, so these would treat staph aureus and GI microbes. They're broad-spectrum, beta-lactamase resistant, and they treat anaerobes. Monobactam is astrionum, which is a narrow-spectrum gram-negative antibiotic, and it does weaken the cell wall. Next, we have vancomycin, which is the most widely used antibiotic today. It inhibits cell wall synthesis. Um, the uses would include severe infections, MRSA, and C. diff. So we're using this for resistance for severe things. Considerations, the dosage would be 15 to 20 milligrams per kilogram every 8 to 12 hours. You'd want to reduce that dosage if it was IV with renal impairment. And you would generally just be adjusting and modifying the dosage to maintain trough serum levels of 15 to 20 micrograms per milliliter if the person had a severe infection, or 10 to 20 micrograms per milliliter for mild infection. Some adverse effects, renal failure is common. You want to avoid nephrotoxic drugs, including NSAIDs and aminoglycosides. It can cause ototoxicity, thrombophlebitis, Redman syndrome is one of the very classic complications. You'd see flushing, itching, hypertension, and tachycardia caused by histamine response, and this can be prevented with a slow infusion over 60 plus minutes. If someone did develop this, you would want to stop or slow the infusion, and they could receive it in the future. There is a risk of developing VRE, vancomycin-resistant enterococci, which can infect intestines, um, cause UTIs, and infect wounds. For vancomycin administration, PO, it's not absorbed systemically, but if you're thinking about GI infections, that is an appropriate choice since it would be delivering it locally. Um, IV administration, you would want to make sure you dilute it, infuse slowly over 
I believe, at least an hour and rotate infusion sites. Next up, we have tetracyclines. These are broad-spectrum antibiotics that work for a wide variety of bacteria, especially gram-positive, and they are bacteriostatic. You would use tetracyclines for rickettsia, chlamydia, acne, vulgaris, cholera, mycoplasma, pneumoniae, uh, Lyme disease, anthrax infections, and H. pylori. Um, the drug interactions, it forms a bond if it's taken with calcium supplements, milk products, iron supplements, magnesium containing laxative, and most antacids. So you would not want to take it with any of those because it would render the tetracycline drug inert. Adverse effects, it does have GI effects. You could also see discolored teeth. They become yellowish brown, and that amount is proportionate to the length and dose of the drug. Also important to note, after the fourth month of pregnancy, it's going to cause tooth discoloration in the child's deciduous or baby teeth, but not their permanent teeth. It could also cause super infection, namely C. diff. Photosensitivity is common, so you'd want to make sure you wear sunscreen and truly avoid the sun to avoid severe burns. Also ca causes hepatotoxicity and renal toxicity. Our next class are the macrolides. This is erythromycin, clarithromycin, and azithromycin. These are broad-spectrum bacteriostatic antibiotics. They're mostly treating gram-positive bacteria, and they inhibit protein synthesis. Adverse effects, the main, main important one, macrolides with our mycins, are prolonged Q QT intervals, leading to potential torsades to points and sudden cardiac death. Other complications, GI issues, cholestatic hepatitis, superinfection, and the use of that P450 system. Next, we have clindamycin, which inhibits protein synthesis. Adverse effects, it could induce pseudomembranous colitis, aka C. diff, and it would only be used for certain anaerobic infections outside the central nervous system. We have our oxolidinones, um, including linozolid, which inhibits protein synthesis, and this would be used for resistant things, so carbapenem-resistant enterococcus and MRSA. Probably actually VRE, vancomycin-resistant enterococcus and MRSA. Um, we have our glycyclines, including tigcycline. This inhibits protein synthesis and acts against many resistant microbes. We have our aminoglycosides, so these are bactericidal inhibitors of protein synthesis that create abnormal cell wall proteins. Very narrow spectrum, aerobes only. Adverse effects include nephrotoxicity, ototoxicity, hypersensitivity reactions, and neuromuscular blockade. Drug interactions, once again, penicillin is going to inactivate aminoglycosides, so you're going to want to wait to administer it for one to two hours after giving penicillin. You must draw drug levels on this one, likely due to that nephrotoxicity. Um, the prototype for this class is gentamicin, which is going to treat serious infections caused by anaerobic gram-negative bacilli, including Pseudomonas, E. coli, Klebsiella, Serratia, and Proteus mirabilis. Um, and once again, the adverse effects are nephrotoxicity and ototoxicity. So our next class is sulfonamides, includes sulfamethoxazole, which inhibits bacterial folic acid production and is bacteriostatic. Adverse effects include hypersensitivity, namely Stevens-Johnson syndrome, hematologic effects like neutropenia, megaloblastic anemia, kernicterus, which is bilirubin deposits in the newborn's brain, and crystalluria. 
So our two prototypes are trimethoprim and sulfamethoxidin trimethoprim. So a combination dose of those two, which allow fewer doses of each and fewer adverse effects. This would be used for uncomplicated UTIs, pneumocystis, Carini, GI infections. Adverse effects include GI upset, rash, and crystal urea. Once again, trimethoprim would only be used for UTIs and does have those hematologic adverse effects. And since there are pretty severe impacts on the newborn brain, this is not given during pregnancy ever. Fluoroquinolone, our prototype is ciprofloxacin. So this is going to be broad spectrum and inhibits bacterial DNA. There are many uses, but it's the best drug for anthrax most commonly. Adverse effects, the most notable is tendon rupture. So ciprofloxacin tendon rupture it can also cause gi problems headache and candida infections interactions you'd want to avoid those cation compounds once again like magnesium iron calcium most antacids anything of that nature and it also increases warfarin and theophylline levels finally we have metronidazole which has many uses particularly gi microbes protozoa anaerobic infections and h pylori Adverse effects include neurotoxicity, allergy, and superinfection. And really important to note with this one, it causes antabuse reactions with alcohol. So someone who is on metronidazole and drinking alcohol is going to have a severe, very uncomfortable reaction. Discuss the main indications for intravenous amphotericin B. So you would use this for systemic mycotic infections. So this could be candidiasis, aspergillosis, sporotrichosis, blastomycosis, and histoplasmosis. So it is generally speaking a broad spectrum fungal agent for systemic fungal infections. Identify the three most common adverse responses to amphotericin B and the precautions that should be taken to minimize their effects. So we have infusion reactions, which include chills, fever, headache, nausea, and rigors. Rigors. So this is the result of inflammatory cytokine release. That would be interleukin-1 and tumor necrosis factor. So it tends to occur and begin one to three hours after initiation of the drug and persist one hour. You would want to pre-treat the patient with antihistamines and acetaminophen to prevent the symptoms, and you could give meparidine and dantrolene for the rigors. The patient might also have phlebitis as an infusion reaction. You'd want to alternate IV sites, use a central line, and administer with heparin to minimize those adverse effects. Patients on amphotericin B will also have nephrotoxicity. So this is an expected effect, and it is transient. It should resolve. So to minimize it and minimize the long-lasting effects, you'd give one liter of normal saline on the days that amphob is given to reduce the risk of AKI. Um, you'd also want to avoid nephrotoxic drugs, which include NSAIDs, aminoglycosides, and cyclosporin. You would be monitoring the serum creatinine serum creatinine every three to four days and reduce the dosage if the creatinine ever jumps above 3.5 milligrams per deciliter because I would indicate that the kidney is not tolerating it well. And finally, our third most common adverse effect is hypokalemia and that is from the kidney damage.